Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos Foreign Policies Economics Podcast. Every week we take two data points, we use them to explain what's going on in the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, a deputy editor here at Foreign Policy, joining you from Berlin. With us, as always, is FP economics columnist and Columbia University professor Adam Tooze. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. So coming up in the second part of our show, we'll be looking at classic cars and why the market for some of these machines is so hot right now. But first, let's get to our main data point. That number is 111. That's the number of countries that the Biden administration invited to participate this week in the first ever Summit for Democracy. U.S. President Joe Biden is gathering the leaders of more than 100 countries for a virtual summit for democracy. According to 2021 wasn't exactly the best year for democracy around the world. So is Joe Biden's summit for democracy supposed to come in and save the day? Let's get to the bottom. This gathering has been on my mind for a long time for a simple reason. In the face of sustained and alarming challenges to democracy, universal human rights, democracy needs champions. The White House is clearly hoping it won't be the last. Uh, the thought here seems to be that this should be an annual event and some sort of lasting new international forum that would establish a meaningful alliance among the world's democracies. Of course, that'll depend on how the summit went. And this is where I should probably admit that we're recording this on Thursday, I think a little bit after the summit started. And the podcast will drop, as always, on Friday morning. U.S. time, probably before the summit is over. So we can't comment on the outcomes of what happened, but there's plenty to discuss nevertheless. I mean, creating something like this new forum has been one of Biden's promises, tracing back to his campaign, and it's one of the big centerpieces of his foreign policy now. And that's because of the you know most conspicuous country that wasn't invited to participate, and I'm talking about China. The entire democracy summit was conceived as a way of strengthening democracies by exchanging ideas on reform and corruption. But also, through the same efforts, it's meant as a way of pushing back on China's growing influence around the world. I mean, it's clearly a political project, but it got me wondering if it makes sense to also think of this as an economic project. After all, the rivalry with China definitely has a strong economic component. So, Adam, to start, is there an economic basis, really, for this whole block of democracies. It's not like the Cold War, right? I mean, there was this ideological division back then that, that mapped pretty clearly onto economic divisions, as far as I understand. I mean, does history suggest if there isn't a, an economic basis for this kind of block, can it work? Can this cohere in any significant way just on the basis of ideology without that economic logic? Oh, it's a puzzling world we're in, I think, because oh, you're right. I mean, in 
the Cold War era, you might as well say that the alliance bloc was really fundamentally based on on economics, not politics. Uh, you certainly didn't have to be a democracy in any conventional sense of the word to belong to the US bloc. Uh, you needed to respect private property rights and particularly those of big Western businesses and American ones in particular. And it helped, of course, if you showed your anti-communist stripes too. Um, the remarkable thing about our current moment is precisely that both sides, the Chinese and the Americans, are blowing up an ideological and national security rivalry at a time when economic interests in the West and indeed in China are in fact tightly interwoven uh, with each other. So... I think that's really the the puzzle of the current moment. I mean, and I shouldn't. I don't think one should sort of exaggerate the significance of this moment. You're right, of course, it was part of the Biden foreign policy agenda. But to call this hodgepodge of countries a block, I think, is really quite grossly exaggerated. I mean, I think they wanted to do an event. They needed countries from every continent. They started working down the list. So there's some surprising people in there, Angola, for instance, and others like Hungary and Turkey that are not part of the Christmas invite list this year. Yeah, I mean, I guess I meant block as as an aspiration of a kind, you know, because clearly, yeah, when you're stretching from Iraq to Angola to um, Canada, it's pretty uh, tough to imagine what's linking all these places. But let's zoom out a little bit here. This got me wondering about democracies in general and how democracies perform economically. I mean, would there be a kind of economic logic in that sense? I mean, are are democracies generally better than the competition when it comes to, you know, economic measurements? Uh, are there e- political factors uh, that contribute to the economic success of democracies in general? Uh, it's an incredibly hotly debated issue amongst political scientists and political economists. Um, I found a paper, a very recent paper, 2019, which was a a meta-regression analysis of 483 estimates of the relationship between democracy and economic growth derived from 84 studies of this question. So by this point, people are doing statistics on other people's statistical estimates of the relationship or lack of it between democracy and economic success. I mean, I think it's a large part to do with the fact not just that it's very difficult to define what we mean by by democracy, but also that it depends on what growth model that you use. So the classic property rights, wealth protection kind of angle, where there's a lot of economic theory that would suggest that, you know, securing property rights is crucial because they're the basis for incentives and for accumulation, investment and so on. What you need to anchor that in political and legal terms is representative government. Right, So you need liberalism, constitutionalism, parliaments, the rule of law. It doesn't necessarily give you democracy. In fact, you could almost construct democracy as a contradiction to this kind of liberalism. Um, because why? Because capitalism systematically generates inequality and democracy, notionally at least, systematically empowers the majority. And so certainly in the 19th century, most political theorists were convinced that democracy would be the death of civilization as they knew it and prosperity. It's not for nothing that in the classical period, you know, the term Democrat was a term of abuse, as in, you know, you people mad enough to believe that the demos should rule, you Democrats, you. And there are plenty of examples of, you know, ways in which investors have at various points attempted to sabotage democratic governance. On the other hand, you could say the argument cuts the other way. If 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 what investment needs is stability and you take the rise of popular government to be essentially an, an unstoppable trend of modern history, then at some point or other, you're going to have to 
open the gates to democracy. And so it's the one thing that will make you future-proof and really establish your society as stable. Um, it can even be a power play of like one elite group against another to secure their position. If you think like Bismarck against the liberals in the 19th century, empower the peasantry to secure conservative rule. So in that sense, democracy enables investment and growth. So I think there are many different ways in which this relationship can be modulated. And the difficulty that the quantitative political scientists have in sorting it out reflects just the extraordinary array of different relationships that, that have emerged over the last 150 years. Hmm. I would love to take a, a closer look at the economics of populist authoritarianism here. I mean, let's take the example of the current economic crisis in Turkey. I mean, from what I can tell, this was a case where quite literally comments by the authoritarian president there, President Erdogan, led to a kind of crash of the the currency and a, a broader economic crisis. I mean, what is the mechanism by which just sort of comments by a single person, by the, like a president like Erdogan, how does that produce a, a crisis in the real economy in this kind of political system? I mean, presumably the foundation of the Turkish economy is the same as it was before, right? So how exactly does this work? Yeah, and that foundation is strong, which is why... Um, foreign investors are in Turkey, right? It's a big place, 80 plus million inhabitants, rapid growth over the last couple of decades. It's very close to the EU and has preferential trading relationships with the EU. So like Poland on the eastern edge of the EU, it's it's grown very rapidly over the last 20 years. I mean, transformed in terms of GDP per capita, threefold increase in purchasing power parity terms since the early 2000s. And Erdogan at first, you know, um, sure, he's a populist, but he wasn't originally seen as presenting a problem on the contrary. I mean, he was touted as Islam's answer to Christian democracy in the early 2000s. Um, but it's really in the last decade that he's tightened his grip on power um, and increasingly, of course, brutally after the, the coup attempt uh, against him in 2016, I think that was, wasn't it? And he's at war with civil liberties, his political opponents, and increasingly also the secular elites in Turkey. So there is a backdrop here. It's not as though you know, it was just a few words by Erdogan that um, triggered this. Uh, tension has been building up. Um, but the crucial thing, and this is an interesting aspect of this whole problem, is that, that what causes real panic is his challenge to the independence of the central bank. So this is like another way in which um, in foreign investors could be made comfortable with practically any regime type if they believe that the central bank is an independent institution that sets policy with regard to currency and interest rates in a way which conforms, shall we say, to global standards, then you can kind of shrug at the domestic politics and leave that to be its own thing because you're, as it were, under the protection of central bankers who play by Western rules. And that's what's really so terrifying about Erdogan is that he he doesn't. I mean, he, he's basically burned his way through half a dozen central bankers at this point. He has a pet theory that interest rate increases rather than reducing inflation, as most people believe, actually causes inflation. So as inflation goes up, he calls on the central bank to cut rates, which, which may have a logic in making the lira devalue and 
exports become more competitive. And it may be good for people who've got debts in Turkey. So it feeds a constituency, but it also drives fundamental macroeconomic instability. That begins to feed off itself. The lira's plunged, inflation has soared. And in fact, even inflation has become politicized because people doubt that the Turkish um, statistical agency is any longer independent of government. I want to follow up with just one quick question here, because I don't know, the way you're describing how investors may have thought about Turkey before, was the central bank ever independent in this system? I mean, in a dictatorship or an authoritarian system, are there such things as independent uh, agencies like central banks? Isn't that the definition of a dictatorship? They're sort of at the whim of the leader, even when they're not exercising that power. I mean, how to make sense of that? Yeah, but I mean, the question with Erdogan, what is, what kind of a regime is the regime that he's building? I mean, if it is taking on dictatorial aspects and authoritarian aspects, it's very much in flux. And so the question is more, you know, which set of institutions will he touch next? And if the courts are pretty thoroughly aligned at this point with his regime, the next question is, well, what about the um, central bank? Um, And that's the way in which the question is posed. Um, there have been moments in which Turkey has been subject to really quite brutal external financial constraint. And this is the trauma against which Erdogan you know, operates. So, I mean, he, he comes to prominence in the early 2000s after a major financial crisis in which the IMF dictated very harsh terms to Turkey. And so ever since, as it were, the question has been how far can Turkey go? And that's, that's the game that he's playing. And so it's not a done deal, I think. So, yeah, maybe we should end with China, because I do think that obviously was where we started with this summit of democracies, was, was, was intended to kind of counter China. Um, I saw in response to this summit, China, uh, someone in the government there, or maybe the government spokesperson claimed that China is actually a democracy. I can't uh, get my mind around that. But it did get me wondering whether we should even be considering it a market economy at all. Uh, I mean, this question of democracy and capitalism, should we be thinking of them as two distinct categories at all? I mean, or is the former democracy a kind of precondition for the full emergence of the latter? And if not, if China's not a market economy, what should we call it? I mean, is this a genuinely new economic system it's, it's just come up with that it's developed by virtue of, of its uh, political system that it has? What do you think about all that, Adam? I think historically, it's probably closer to the other way around, right? So democracy is not a precondition for the emergence of capitalism. Um, In general, the emergence of capitalism, however you define it, and that's a hugely contentious business, more commerce or more about, you know, the relations of labor. But in any case, however you define it, capitalism emerges centuries before anything you could reasonably describe as democracy. Representative bodies parliaments emerge as checks on sovereigns precisely when those sovereigns want to tax or raise debt. So this is like England in the late 1400s, 1500s. Um, And why is it that, as it were, those parliaments are necessary? Well, they're necessary to represent those who are going to be taxed by the monarchical sovereign. And the men in those parliaments, and they are all men, are there because of their wealth. And so to that extent, as it were, you have parliaments because of economic development and capitalism, not the other way around. Um, And around those parliaments, then demands for wider inclusion develop progressively over time by the 19th century in the name of democracy as such. 
But the question of the market economy that you introduce adds a sort of further dimension, which is not so much capitalism versus democracy as the state versus the market. Um, so, so the question of whether China is a market economy doesn't depend so much on whether it's democratic, uh, but really more the role of the state, and which is clearly larger in China than it is, for instance, in the United States. But here again, there's a, such a huge spectrum of options. I know kind of the answers and the conversation this week has a kind of like wishy-washy quality to it. But I think that's kind of in the nature of the beast, right? Because if you think about the role of the state in the economy, think about European economies after 1945. I was just sort of absentmindedly making a list in the shower the other day. Like, you know, public ownership extended so-called SOEs, state-owned enterprises that China has, America doesn't notionally, and therefore China's not a market economy. Well, you know, in Britain in the early 70s, it would have included coal, steel, energy, electricity, gas, airlines, car plants, railways, all of those were in public ownership in Britain in the early 1970s. And that's what we used to call a mixed economy, a mixed economy under the sign of a democratic welfare state. So I think we probably have to reckon that China is the return of some sort of mixed or the assertion or the development of some kind of mixed economy model, which in fact doesn't have much of a welfare state. This is something we ought to discuss at some point. It's really it's really counterintuitive and kind of mind-blowing how small both the tax and the welfare elements of the Chinese state apparatus are, but has got very large and centrally directed to a degree state-owned enterprises that dominate huge slices of the economy. So yeah, no, I'm all about, I completely agree. I think the best way to think of it is a new formation which reconfigures this relationship between the economy, the state and politics in a way which, you know, on this scale, we've never seen before. Yeah, I do think we're going to be returning to this subject. But coming up in the second part of our show, we'll be looking at classic cars and why the market for some of these machines is so hot right now. Welcome back to Ones and Twos. Our data point from beyond the headlines this week is 203,000. That's the number of British pounds that a 1968 Ford Escort recently sold for at auction. So that's a lot of money to spend on any kind of car, of course, but if I'm understanding correctly, Adam, this isn't even a kind of car that would get you to work or your kid to school every day, right? I mean, this is basically a collector's item, right? Yeah, so this was a, a 1968 works touring car version of the Ford Escort. I mean, works touring car means that this was an official Ford-produced racing car for the track. Uh, and these kind of things are super chic right now. Um, it's kind of as though when we eat, as we move towards the end of the fossil fuel era and the internal combustion engine is kind of on its way out, it's as though folks, well, like, you know, and we should be honest, it's like dudes are going back to their childhood and picking up their childhood dreams and then making them better, bringing them back in kind of 21st century style. So this is the so-called resto rod scene. And this particular Ford Escort is a pure racing car. It really isn't street legal. But a 1972 Ford Escort, a, a spiffy uh, RS1600, recently went for £70,000. Now, obviously, these aren't the things, you know, they aren't the sort of things that people need in any reasonable sense of the word, but they do want them. 
and that's created a spectacular bull market in classic cars. Uh, not not really old cars like you know Model T Fords or something, but classic cars from the last fifty to seventy years. So high performance, drivable. And and between two thousand and seven and fifteen, when that market peaked, the price the uh, on average for classic cars surged by about eighty five percent, so almost doubled. That was the average car at auction. Um, if, on the other hand, you wanted something like properly cool, say uh, Aston Martin DB6, like the one that Sean Connery drove in, you know, Goldfinger, the James Bond film. That price quadrupled over the same period, that kind of real collector's item. But these Ford Escorts aren't Aston Martins, but they're, you know, very much in line with that kind of general trend in the classic car market. Okay, but the the number is 200,000 pounds. That's almost a quarter of a million dollars. I mean, that really shocked me when I, when I first came across it. And I think that's because when I was growing up on Long Island near New York City uh, in the 80s and 90s, Ford Escorts were everywhere, and, and they didn't seem like something that would qualify as cool or vintage, but it turns out, and this is something I've learned, Escorts have a longer history. Uh, the British Ford Escort that just got sold at auction, I mean, this predates the ones from America that I grew up with, right? Yeah, I, it's funny because I had the absolutely reverse reaction when I saw this. this. This story really struck a chord with me because escorts were totally ubiquitous when I was growing up in Britain and Germany in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they were first showcased at the Brussels Car Show in 1967, the year I was born, and they were on the market in 68. They became the second best-selling car in British history, 4 million units sold. Uh, but it wasn't really a British car. It, it was a European car. And, and this happened because starting in the 60s, first Ford and then GM merged and integrated all their European operations around single standard models. And in Ford's case, that involved plants in Britain and Germany and Ireland and Spain and France. And unifying these operations into Ford Europe and, Ford, and GM Europe enabled them basically to operate more efficiently and get synergies. And it also set them up in the British case for entry into the common market in 1973. So, you know, when that happened, they were ready to go. The way you're describing it, it makes the escort seem like a window into globalization as a whole. I mean, some of the benefits of globalization we don't even think about anymore. I mean, but just to take the Ford as an example, I mean, what exactly were the benefits of getting Ford's divisions uh, that you were just describing, taking them from around Europe and working together on this car? Was the Escort particularly innovative? Was it high performing? I mean, what came out of this global collaboration? Yeah, it's a really, really fascinating point tucked away in this completely mundane piece of, you know, metal that's sitting around on any street corner in the 70s. Um, it gets to the heart of how we think about globalization, in fact, because often when we think of globalization, we tend to think of it as happening between national economies, right? So the American economy integrating with the Chinese economy or Germany with the other members of the EU. And then we think of trade as flowing across country borders. This is how statistics show it happening, right? It, uh, trade balances, imports, exports, trade deficits, they're all nation to nation. But in fact, of course, trade doesn't take place between countries. It takes place between 
private businesses, importers and exporters, manufacturers and so on. It's only really in very extraordinary circumstances that you have like a national import agency. You might have that in a war, in an emergency. And in fact, quite a lot of trade, very large part of trade, in fact, takes place within the same corporation. So about 50% of total global trade takes place inside corporations, not even between them, not between countries, but inside a single entity. And and so how big multinationals like Ford or GM operate has a huge impact on how global trade is actually organized. The advantages from their point of view in the 60s and 70s were, yeah, definitely efficiencies. If you build and design a car collaboratively across all of Europe, you can get the blueprints out, you can get the tooling out to all of your different factories. It gives, gives you cost savings. And in the 70s, another real concern was, as it were, the reliability, the resilience of what you might call the supply chain. You know, you get redundancy from having a system of many factories that can produce one car. So if Halewood, which was your big manufacturing centre for Ford in, and the Escort in England, is shut down by a strike, as happened quite a lot in the 70s, you can stock your dealerships with Escorts being produced in Spain or France. And they're basically the same car, apart from having, you know, have to get the steering wheel on the right side so you can you can tool up the lines to do that. And you're doing this under intense pressure from Japanese competitors. So standardizing and unifying across Europe was all part of that process. It didn't make the Escort a fancy car, a more, you know, more high-performing car, but it made it uh, cheaper to produce and more reliable uh, in its availability. Yeah, I mean, again, I'll admit I didn't know any of this when I was growing up in America that even that Ford had engineers spanning the world working on cars in their own markets. But maybe I should have known if I was paying attention as a kid in the 80s, because it turns out that when the Ford Escort started getting sold in the United States, they actually had this big advertising campaign. This is one of the things, again, I've learned, where this globalized aspect of the car was really foregrounded by Ford. I mean, it was in all its advertisements. It was pitched as a world car, right? And so that's a term I'd never heard of, but it seemed to work for the car. It was obviously popular. But all this got me thinking about how globalization used to actually almost be cool, I guess. I mean, it was a selling point. You could actually use the global popularity as a way to sell uh, the car. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's it's really it's really a fascinating moment. This um, this idea of the world car because it takes the logic of corporate integration and globalization to the to the next level, and and as you say, it can then be used as a marketing device. Uh, you know, one product for all of the major world markets. Um, if, if you think about it, it's really quite a gamble. I mean, we kind of take it for granted today, don't we? Like with smartphones or computers, that you know, one set of sneakers or an iPhone will be will be popular all over the world, um, and that really wasn't the way in which cars were marketed or built in the fifties and sixties, especially transatlantically. There were there are absolutely huge differences in design, in taste, in performance, and above all, in fuel consumption on either side of the Atlantic. Differences of a factor of two or three or four um, in petrol price and petrol consumption. Um, so Ford and GM would make very different f uh, cars on either side of, of the Atlantic to, to meet those, those needs. And if you watch European films from the 50s and 60s, you'll see that the people who drive what are American cars, so cars actually imported from the US, are film stars or gangsters, you know, deviants who engage in ridiculously conspicuous consumption of hugely expensive petrol. Europeans drive sensible little cars. 
And so for multinationals like Ford and GM to, as it were, build a world car was a huge step because their European operations were in a different world. In fact, in the early 60s, the only firm to produce a single car that was sold everywhere in the world was VW. It turns out the Hitler's Volkswagen, the people's car, did in fact literally work for everyone in the world or could be marketed in California for the hippies. In Mexico, there's a huge nostalgic culture around the Beetle. But other than VW, the, the, the breakthrough really comes with the Japanese and it's Toyota and really the Toyota Corolla that opens the door. And if you look at the Toyota Corolla from this period, you'll see that the Escort is really almost a copy the Corolla was introduced in 66. Uh, by 74, it's the best-selling car in the world, literally dominating markets worldwide. And that's a huge shock, right? Because Ford basically invented the mass manufacture of the modern motor car, and now it's trailing Toyota. I guess I still wonder whether maybe one of the lessons here is that people should think twice maybe about getting rid of their old cars. I mean, if you take their that clunker in your garage today, you never know. You could be passing it down to someone. Maybe you should hold on to it uh, to pay for your kid's college tuition in a few years. Uh, yeah, you could try. But I mean, I think the big picture here is that these cars, they're, you know, they're a dying breed. They're headed for extinction. We are about to witness one of the great technological transitions in history. Uh, you know, we're uh, maybe a decade, two away from the end of the internal combustion engine as the main form for road transport, at least for new vehicles. Um, if you look at the latest proposals out of Brussels and, in fact, in the US, we're going to see the end of the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles by most manufacturers by the mid-30s, 2030s, that is. So then we'll have like this arc of history right? that starts with the Rhine Valley and tinkerers in France and Germany developing various types of new vehicle, Carl Benz in 1885, debuting the first thing which is generally recognized as a modern car. And 150 years later, we're really seeing the end of that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be able to have the cool, swoopy 1970s Coke bottle styling, you know, an escort type body, but it'll be a plastic shell strapped on what's now called uh, an electric skateboard. So retro style with a pokey little electric engine fueled by renewable energy, we hope. Ah, see, that's inspiring in a different way. Now, maybe I'll call my friend uh, Dustin back in high school. He used to have one of these Escorts or, or Corollas, I think. Uh, maybe we can swap out the old engine and fit in a new electric one from our old ride to school. But we will leave it there for this week. That was another episode of Ones and Twos. My thanks, as always, to uh, my co-host, Adam Twos. And listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can also tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And also for this holiday season coming up, Adam was kind enough to come up with some suggested reading for yourself or friends, family members. That's, of course, in addition to Adam's own latest book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. You should definitely buy that one. But be sure to also check out the list he drew up at foreignpolicy.com and then click on the page for the Ones and Twos podcast. So Ones and Twos is written by me, Cameron Abadi, and Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. 
And the executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back in your feed next week. Bye.